That's perfect. Okay. So, Ellen, you asked that you move to this end so that this one was beautiful. So, welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. My name is Kelly Kirkpatrick. I'm one of the um, associate project directors for a HRSA-funded program called Advancing Competency for Geriatric Care in Rural Northern New England, um, ACGC for short. Um, so the Health Resources and Services Administration provides our funding, which allows us to put on programs like these free of charge. So that's also why we need to collect some information from you while you're here. So if you could please um, complete those forms before you leave, we really appreciate it. And then in order to receive educational credit for the program, you need to be signed in. So please make sure that you signed in at the back and make sure that your name is legible. Um, your contact hour will be posted on your online transcript. And there is a piece of paper on the back table if you need it that tells you how to access your online transcript. Um, and you need to attend 80% of the hour-long program to receive credit. Um, I need to say aloud that Neither our speakers or any member of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. disclose. And any product, service, or company being discussed or displayed in conjunction with this activity does not imply that there's a real or implied endorsement by the American Nurses Credentialing Center or Dartmouth Hitchcock. Let's see, if you have a cell phone, if you could please put that on silence now, we'd appreciate it. And um, video conferencing sites, if you could please put your system on mute until the end of the program when there's an opportunity for questions. So this is part of our Issues in Geriatric Health Clinical and Nursing Insights series, which takes place monthly. Uh, next month, we'll be having uh, Brenda Jordan speaking on antipsychotic use in patients with dementia, again, part of the Choosing Wisely series. Um, but today, we're happy to welcome Ellen Flaherty. She's a nurse practitioner um, for the geriatric team, the blue team here at Dartmouth Medical Center. She's also the director of clinical training for the Northern New England Geriatric Education Center. And she's a member and officer for the American Geriatric Society. And she'll be giving us an overview of the Juvenile program. Thanks. Thanks, Kelly. Welcome, everyone. Hi, Sandy. <laughs> Um, so I think I would just like to start out because we have the benefit of having a relatively small group um, is to just for me to get a sense of who you are and kind of why you're here, what your interest in geriatrics is. Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the campaign in general. Um, so about the Choosing Wisely campaign, which is much greater than just geriatrics and talk about how that came about. And then we're going to go into some of the specifics um, of the uh, geriatrics initiative. Um, and hopefully we can, like I said, be a little bit more informal. Hopefully our friends and other sites are able to, to chime in. And, um, and like I said, hopefully we can, we can keep this at kind of a, a dialogue level. So if you'd like to just start. I'm Carla Polina. I work on medical specialties, so we have a huge spectrum, age spectrum, including elderly, and we have the other life programs, so very applicable for my clientele. Mm -hmm. And I'm Ruth Perinas. I'm a clinical educator. I work for Office of Professional Nursing, and I, but I did work on medical specialties for about 20 years, so do enjoy keeping up with the in-service. My name is Megan Popperovich. I'm a staff nurse on medical specialties. I'm also board certified in geriatrics, and I just want to be a content um, specialist. And that's my name. I'm Catherine Reagan. I also work on medical specialties, um, and I would like to eventually become certified in geriatrics. Excellent. I'm going to go on a health coach for the Center for Shared Decision. I'm Sue Berg, also from the Center for Shared Decision. I'm Jim Matika. I work here at the hospital on two West Surgical Board. We do see a lot of elderly patients having big major surgeries and just interested in anything that would be applicable. Mm -hmm. As well as personally, I have a 91 year old father in nursing home. So anything that could gain information would be helpful. Here. I'm Debbie Ponsky and I work here in medical care and we do a large geriatric population. How about our partners in the other sites? I see Sandy from Nashua. 
Hi, I'm Sandy Burstein. I'm a family doctor and geriatrician in Nashua, uh, and I'm getting older. My name is Jan Thomas, and I'm the Director of Staff Development for the Community Group Practices for Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So I was trying to get folks here from our Manchester uh, ambulatory site. So. Terrific. And we have folks at Southern Vermont uh, Medical Center in Bennington. And uh, we are a group from Valley Regional. Yeah, we have Valley Regional also. Oh, yes, from Claremont, New Hampshire. Excellent. Is that everybody? Other than me, the technician. Terrific. So to start out, well, first, I actually do have a disclosure, and we probably should, you know, shut off the recording, but I'm actually the treasurer of the American Geriatric Society, so I actually signed the check for this initiative. <laughs> so I, I, I do have bias, and, uh, and certainly supporting this uh, evidence-based initiative. Um, so just to take a step back, so the American Board of Internal Medicine, which is ABIM, has a foundation, and the mission of the foundation is really to do uh, patient and family education. And so they, about five years ago, really thought a lot about what are some of the things that patients and physicians should partner about. And, and the focus was really on not only over-testing and overuse of testing, but what really was the evidence? And uh, as you well know, there's a lot of things that go on in terms of testing or decision making that really is not based on evidence. Um, and so how could we elevate this level of supporting conversations with patients and their providers? Um, and what would that take? So initially what they did, and this was also supported by something called the uh, National Physicians Alliance. And in looking at the research, they found that at least at, at least 30% of all testing and uh, uh, not only testing but interventions are actually unnecessary and not supported by evidence. Um, so they first started out with something called the list that the things physicians and patients should question. Um, and they went around to, again, some specialty organizations and they asked them, what are some of those things in your organization that, that, that people should be talking about? And specifically, now I think there's 36 subspecialty organizations. So, you know, dermatology and surgeons and, you know, it, a whole host of subspecialty organizations have started out by creating those lists. And then it be, moved into this Choosing Wisely campaign. And so the way that the American Geriatric Society did is when we were approached, um, we first uh, basically tried to include uh, feedback from our membership um, to say, what are the things, what is the evidence that we have, what are the things that are uh, overprescribed and overused, and what do you see you know, in your practice? And so out of those huge surveys, um, and looking at these expert panels. And at the American Geriatric Society, it went through our clinical practice committee um, and led by a guy by the name of Paul Mulhausen. Um, <clears throat> and it was an interdisciplinary team. They came up with 10 things. And based on those 10 things, then the committee really set to work on looking at what the evidence was, was about those 10 things. And they needed to narrow that down to five things, which was really quite the challenge. And not only narrow it down to five things, but those things, there had to be a substantial amount of evidence that they could demonstrate that the, about those five things. Um, so as you can well imagine, that took a tremendous amount of time, ergo money, um, to support going back to the literature and having people really do their homework to, to, to find this out. Um, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through each one 
And again, to ask for feedback, dialogue, to talk about some of these issues in your practice, because uh, I'm, uh, I'm happy that two people recognize that, it, that they were here or that the issues that they face every day go beyond the scope of their, of their professional life. Um, when we look at the age of nurses, um, we know that one of the huge issues is us caring for our older, older parents and what is that interest in geriatrics. So we're hoping to ride that wave a little bit in terms of nursing and to really um, try to recruit more nurses uh, who are interested in geriatrics. Um, um, obviously a, a subspecialty that's really needed. So I certainly appreciate people who are certified or, or working on their certification. Um, so with that said, I'm going to, to move on. Um, and so the first thing, the number one um, thing that they talked about, move my slide, sorry. Are two feedings. Um, so clearly, a couple of us around the table have a couple of gray hairs. So, which leads me to think that in your practice, at some point, you saw a lot of patients with tubes. Um, I certainly did in terms of my clinical practice, especially in long-term care. Um, and so, I think many of us, for a really long time really thought a lot about this and why why were tubes being put into patients who who have dementia and who have you know a lot of patients have severe dementia and we were put and, and it wasn't even about decision making. I mean it was just what we did. Um, and so that brings to I guess one of the major themes of what I'd like to talk about today. And that's really having that, that those conversations, those goals of care conversations, which is what we talk about a lot in geriatrics. And those goals of care conversations clearly have to happen long before somebody has severe dementia. Um, and so we are, we try really, really hard, certainly in geriatrics, to do this. But I think um, one of the biggest issues is really, number one, not only having the time to have those conversations with patients, but how do you support those conversations among family members? Um, is anybody here familiar with any of the, uh, the, we have some initiatives going on here, but when I use the term uh, death cafes, um, so um, death cafes are actually um, something that's happening a lot more in Europe, and, and, the, and it's about having conversations with individuals who are not necessarily ill, who are not hospice patients, or not at the end of life and talking about uh, opening up that dialogue to have those conversations. Um, there are actually some initiatives here, certainly over at the Aging Resource Center when we think about that. Um, so what would you say in terms of your, the percentage of patients in your practice or the percentage of patients that you see that you feel really comfortable that, you, that there has been a, a good goals of care conversation? Ten to fifteen percent. Same, Peggy. Well, medical um, specialists that uh, we actually do bedside rounding now, and that's part of our initiative is to discuss goals of care mm -hmm. um, during the rounding. Mm -hmm. So we're working on that. Right. So when we think specifically about tube feedings, um, the, the the conversations about tube feedings are. How should those conversations go about tooth feedings when you're having that dialogue with patients about artificial nutrition and hydration at the end of life, certainly in, in dementia? What are some of the things that we know? It doesn't prolong life. Absolutely. It does not prolong life. Quality of life. Quality of life certainly is increased risk of aspiration. Right. So, so years ago, uh, we felt that there was a, a, a huge school of thought that by putting in a tube feeding that you would reduce aspiration. And that if you had a patient who was aspirating, and that's what we did. We put in, we put in, put in tubes. And then there was a whole thought that, well, 
you couldn't just put in a peg tube, you had to put in a gymnastic tube. And all those things happen, you know, kind of without a lot of evidence. And that's kind of was the standard of care. Um, so we know absolutely 100% for sure um, that tube feedings are really not a good thing um, for older adults, certainly with, with dementia. Um, and do you guys, I mean, in our clinical practice, we do mostly outpatient some nursing home care. Have you, do you see a lot of tube feedings or patients having tube feedings with dementia? Still in the, in the hospital, you do. It's the hardest thing is for families uh, to separate, I think, um, the goals of the patient and the care with how we as a society and humanity like associate like Mm -hmm. And how do those conversations go in terms of providers and nursing and what happens? What is that process? Does it? I assume it varies significantly, but yeah, I mean, obviously depending on the provider. I think the speech language therapists are the biggest advocates in terms of using this evidence to maybe not recommend the feeding tube with advanced dementia. Um, I think they happen just also the speed at which they want decisions made. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think one of the, the biggest things that, that I see working in the outpatient clinic is that families can get their hackles up if it's somebody that they haven't developed a relationship with or have a trust in their opinion sometimes um, recommending not doing something for mom. They want to get the PCP involved who knows the patient. They want to talk to the people that knows the patient. So I think it's very hard when those conversations come up for the first time from someone that the family hasn't developed a rapport and a trusting um, clinical relationship with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just to take a, a step back, I mean, one of the things that we really, you know, that uh, uh, we're faced with all the time or we think long and hard about are swallowing studies in the first place. And, and when you think about the amount of swallowing studies that are that are ordered, there there are way more swallowing studies ordered than should be done because again, if you're not doing anything with the information, why why are you doing those studies in the first place? And so those conversations again have to happen long before you know again these conversations have have, have happened. Um, so I'm going to go to. So. Ellen? Sure. Sandy here in Nashua. <clears throat> I'll just, you're describing the, you know, the advanced care planning kind of discussions, which is a specialized kind of shared decision making. So the information is one thing, but, and, and it uh, goes without saying, but I'll, I'll mention that it, the process of, of uh, exploring people's understanding of their condition, what the gaps are, their experiences with other, with, with family members, for themselves with these type of procedures, and then the, and obviously the goals of care, what matters most to them. So the shared decision making is information, and then understanding, reflection, discussion. So. Mm -hmm. I, just stay on a minute, Sandy. I'm going to ask folks in this room. How many of you are familiar with Pulsed? Getting a couple of nods, Sandy, but I, I, I'm going to give you an opportunity for a little plug here. So actually. Um, what I've described is the advanced care planning could, that has those phases of that which are for healthy adults uh, and then for people with chronic illness or people near the end of life, the PULSE is the provider order for life-sustaining treatment, which is a, uh, a combination of a skilled conversation around helping people explore their understanding, re reflecting on their experiences and discussing their goals of care, combining that with information so they can make a shared decision-making about specific orders, specifically CPR, hospitalization, intubation, feeding tubes, antibiotics, etc. And then the other part of it is a form that transfers that information on your behalf that, that is a specific order. And we have a, an initiative that's going on in communities around New Hampshire that's training people to become certified facilitators of this conversation. And we're going to be bringing that to Lebanon uh, in the next year, as well as uh, basic advanced care planning facilitation skills. So you're going to hear more about that. That's going to happen in your practice, Ellen, with Daniel Sadler. Right. 
So, and if anybody is interested in thinking about that, you can you can let me know, send Kelly an email so we can keep you in the in the queue. So when we start to move some of that and operationalize some of that here in Lebanon, we'd certainly welcome uh, welcome your participation in that. Ellen, um, I just wanted to say that in the fall I went to the um, um, my national uh, association for bioethics, so American Society of Bioethics and Humanities, and what was interesting was they were several sessions on the ethics of assisted oral feeding and at what point does this become coercive or whatever. And so they had quite a few cases, pretty you know, remarkable cases. So that's sort of the next frontier. So I'm so happy that you brought that up, Peggy. Um, so um, the, the, the current thinking, and I should just probably let, let Peggy talk about it, the current thinking is in terms of assisted oral feedings and why don't you just give us a well, so the, the piece of that is, so once you've decided you're not going to put it in a tube and you say, I'm going to accept the, the dangerousness or the, the issues related aspiration that might come with assisted oral feeding and we're not going to do this uh, swallow study in end-stage dementia particularly. So then the struggle is, uh, you know, how vigorously do you assist somebody in oral feeding? And do you support the family if they say, no, we don't want to even offer oral feeding? So those are the next frontiers ethically for at-home care as well as particularly for institutionalized care. Right. So do you give somebody with end-stage dementia insurance? Do you even offer it to them? And 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 is that against their wishes? Um, so I think this is yeah this is really interesting. Because for some people there is sort of a almost a behavioral reaction. There's a belief. Is it are they really? Are they really requesting behaviorally this, or is it a behavioral, almost like you know the infant with the sucking reflex? So, mm -hmm. you know, are we going to reflexive um, acceptance of this, or you know, is this person really wanting it? And how do you evaluate that in a severely demented person? Mm -hmm. Which changes our thought, especially in in you know in long-term care. We had those huge initiatives about the feeders. Uh, and uh, you know, I was I had worked in an 800-bed nursing home in New York City where we actually trained uh, non-clinical staff. So, like the whole accounting department, we trained them in how to feed, um, and and they would get an hour of their day to go up on the floors and feed people. Um, Sandy, are you seeing anything in long-term care? How is, is any of this being translated where people are, you know, not necessarily, you know, being, you know. Aggressively fed or actively fed? I, you know, I haven't seen the nursing home where I work in. They were not. They were not feeding tubes. Not they were not being used. Um, so there was, there was oral feeding. Um, and then people, uh, you know, when they lose weight because they're eating less, we they don't force them one way or the other, but they offer them nutritional supplements. But at some point they they eat less and they lose weight and they. They're frail and they dwindle. Yeah, um, and and then the other thing that we face in long-term care are the regulations and the state coming in. So you know, I've been part of surveys where people have lost weight and you know they have end-stage dementia, and you know the, the 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 surveyors are like, you know, why why are they not, uh, you know, why are you not giving them insure? And you know, people with you know end-stage cancer who have weight loss. So you know, I think. When you have kind of this, not everybody's on the same on the same platform, and it will be very interesting to see what happens with this feeding issue because I think it's going to be it's you know it's going to be a hot topic. Um, so just to move on, um, just talk a little bit about antipsychotics, which goes along with what we're talking about in nursing homes. As everybody knows, there's a huge huge initiative to reduce the use of antipsychotics, um, um, and certainly as a first choice to treat behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. Um, so while there's been certainly a lot of work in nursing um, on uh, how to use a non-pharmacological approach to dementia, we've all been there, and we've, you know, many of us have uh, had that direct experience of, of managing patients who are, you know, disruptive, disruptive to themselves, disruptive to the floors, um, and you know, it would be great if it was a one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, and you had, you know, you could let all the other patients, uh, you know, give them to somebody else, and you could sit there one-on-one -on -one with somebody, but we know that that's completely unrealistic. 
And when we look at staffing issues and when we look at cuts, 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 this becomes an even, an even harder uh, 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 <clears throat> road to hoe. I think, you know, for the purposes of this discussion, I think, you know, what, what the evidence shows certainly is that, um, you know, the, <clears throat> the use of antipsychotics actually, when we look at the big data sets, actually does not improve quality of care. Um, and again, that's really a hard thing to talk to somebody about when you're, you know, you're the front line and you're dealing with it. Um, so I think that we've, we've certainly uh, uh, come a long way uh, in, in talking about that. I think one of the biggest kind of, you know, what I would call sea changes in terms of patients' families is that, you know, we often have to talk to families about black box warnings and that we're prescribing something that has a black box warning for, you know. So now families are coming in and saying, should that be prescribed and what else can we be doing? Um, and which again goes back to the to the initial intent of this was to 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 talk about you know to have that dialogue between patients and, and families and, and providers. Um, again, we try in geriatrics to push back as much as we can. We do get a lot of calls. Our triage nurses are here um, today to to uh, to say you know this is happening in the assisted living. Can we increase X? Can we do this? Can we do that? Um, and um, I think, again, when we think about the staffing level, sometimes this is, this is a bigger challenge. But I think what part of this is doing in terms of the choosing wisely is really trying to, um, again, just look at the evidence and say, we really have to start thinking, thinking differently about this. Um, so, as you can well imagine, um, the American Geriatric Society's membership are, are pretty, you know, calm. You know, there's not too many, you know, you know, outlandish, crazy geriatricians running around. Um, but this was the topic that really had the sparks flying in the room, um, was looking at um, the evidence that we have on lowering hemoglobin A1C or, or really kind of not paying too much attention to it. Um, so what the evidence actually says is that, um, that tighter control as people age is really probably a very unsafe thing to do. Um, and so while a lot of us, again, in geriatrics, we've known that for a really long time, that by having somebody have hypoglycemic events, that they're actually very, very dangerous. And not even for that moment, but over time and what that does and the, the implications over time of those episodes of hypoglycemia. Um, and I have to say, one of the things is that you know, we, we work with certainly diabetics who are younger and we have patients who are very eager and they know their numbers. And then as they, as they get older, they still try to achieve that A1C and trying to kind of retrain them and say, well, guess what? Um, now we're thinking that, you know, you don't necessarily have to have hemoglobin A1C of six. Um, so when we think about this in geriatrics, we think about life expectancy. Um, which again is something that's hard to, to you know predict, and there's been a lot of studies about that. But just in general, if we uh, if somebody over the age of 65 who's healthy and uh, has you know what we would consider at least a 10-year life expectancy, our A1C goal is still 7 to 7.5. Um, and somebody who has oh, you know some comorbidities and a life expectancy of less than 10 years we're really looking at a goal of 7.5 to 8. Um, and then, of course, if somebody has a much lower life expectancy or end of life, then that changes and, and goes up. Um, I think some of the evidence around that is really that the um, that you really need, and again, this is statistics, you need eight years of, of really good control to prevent any of the uh, microvascular side effects. Um, so when we think about older adults, and again, that life expectancy, um, that we're really not trying to achieve that. Um, the other thing is, is that when we look at the studies of episodes of hypoglycemia, um, that there's not a lot of older adults in those studies, as in general, in a lot of research. 
So the thinking is, is that there's probably the, the, the incidence of hypoglycemia in older adults is probably much greater than we're even recognizing. Um, and I'm actually leaving here today to go to our falls clinic, but uh, when we think about some of the things that contribute to, to falls, um, you know, um, back to the psychotropics, but certainly some of this as well. Um, and now I'm going to put uh, Mary Wood on the spot here because she's so graciously came to this talk. So Mary Wood is one of our expert uh, uh, diabetologists here at Hitch. Um, and so what, what has been your experience, Mary, in terms of not only the endocrinologist, but some of the other, uh, you know, folks that are managing diabetes? Do you still see them wanting to do much tighter control in older adults, or where, where do you think we are? Well, Ellen, thanks. Um, I appreciate you even raising this issue. I, I just work in the inpatient part of the hospital, so I don't have really the big picture. But I think there is a, a sense that when people are older um, and life expectancy may be limited, it's reasonable to back off. Before the most recent guidelines came out with the relaxed mm -hmm. people A1C targets, we had kind of said, you know, once somebody hits 70, we ought to aim for 10% of their age as their hemoglobin A1C value, which was just our internal sort of thought process. So somebody who's 85 and maybe um, but I think now, the, as of the 2012 recommendations about hemoglobin agencies for everyone, they kind of relax the standards, uh, the targets, saying you know, for people who've been in terrible control, um, it doesn't make sense to really tighten them up because that's going to increase mortality and morbidity. Um, for people who are unwilling to put in the effort, for people who already have complications, for people who don't feel their hypoglycemia. So there are a number of reasons why, for a lot of people, we would um, relax the target. I think for the um, for elderly uh, patients, it's important to um, focus on avoiding symptoms, and so certainly avoiding hypoglycemia is really key. But hyperglycemic symptoms as well, which can increase the urinary tract infection and increase the uh, hurried trips to the bathroom, um, can affect their vision, um, healing, those kinds of things. Dehydration is huge. You know, elderly folks can go into hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar, hypotonic uh, uh, state, which is like the DKA of type 2 diabetes. And um, there, that carries about a 40% mortality rate because um, elderly people who live alone don't sense their thirst, keep taking their Lasix, get dehydrated, nobody checks on them. And so it, that can be um, catastrophic as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's wonderful that people are recognizing the need to um, relax the A1C target. Mm -hmm. And again, just, you know, your, your comments, I mean, back to the goals of care. And when we think about, you know, helping to manage symptoms and how somebody is doing in general um, versus, again, looking looking specifically at, at the numbers for sure. Just one last thing. Mm -hmm. so, as I mentioned, it's it, taking people who have been in lousy control and bringing them into tight control is what showed the increased mortality and morbidity, especially from cardiovascular events. But there are some elderly folks who have always cared for their diabetes extremely well, extremely aggressively. And for those folks, it's important to, to them to continue to do that into their later years. And so we do occasionally see patients who um, are really committed to continued good glycemic control. And I think that's great. But for for the, the majority of patients, that's more than Right, right. And, and I think we, too, see a fair amount of people who have been in really good, tight control. And, and it's interesting because those are the patients that you don't necessarily send back to diabetic educators, but to make them aware that as they age, things change, and that when you know they were doing X, whatever it is that we, they were doing in terms of their medication and their diet and their exercise, as they age, that may change. You know, it's back to the to the old talk about you know alcohol. I mean, we have you know a good percentage of our patients who come in and say, well, you know, I've had a martini every night for the last 50 years. Well, when your you know kidney function is now you know significantly diminished and you have all these other comorbidities, that's just not going to fly anymore. It's like you know you you had three martinis when you were 30, and clearly you recognize that as something that you shouldn't do. So again, re-educating people, I think, is is sometimes as, as much of a challenge. Um, go ahead. Sure. Quick, this is a quick favorite story. We had a patient in the hospital who had had type 2 diabetes. Uh, at age 86, she was admitted, um, and it appeared that she had lost most of her beta cell function, and so became essentially a type 1 
And we thought, oh, we'll make this easy on her, use the next day for her house. But she insisted on basal holes and wanted to learn everything, wanted to do it all herself. And she was discharged. She called me the next day and she said, my, my bowling group is going bowling today and I want to know how much I should reduce my novel And I go, well, I was like, how this is great. So there are you know, some patients who, you know, take it on as if they were 26 and um, really do. Yeah. 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 Meet them where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Great story. Um, and so, again, I'll put the plug in, you know, for Mary, I think we're very fortunate here to have, you know, some nursing experts that we can rely on and really can help to work with our patients because we go back to here we are in primary care and, you know, we're, we're there for the, you know, the 30-minute visit, some, a lot of providers have 20-minute visits um, for these really complicated patients. And so a lot of this, again, takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of those conversations. We rely on our colleagues, certainly, in shared decision-making. Um, and the good news, which I just found out yesterday on one of our American Geriatric Society calls, is that we are hoping, hoping, hoping to get through um, some uh, billing codes for back to the advanced care planning uh, discussions. So that's, so that's on the good news. Um, so benzodiazepines. Um, I have to say, I think that this is, again, one of the really big challenges in terms of patients who have been on a benzo for many, many years, and they're doing fine. And how do you move beyond that conversation to say, well, you know what? It might have been fine, but guess what? It's probably not going to be fine now because now you have, you know, your balance is off because of X, um, and you have other issues, your, you know, your arthritis, you have pain in your knees, and now what does that benzo do in terms of your falls risk? Um, there's been, you know, a fair amount in the press. Um, if you remember, I guess about a year ago when one of the, you know, the Kennedys, uh, the women, uh, was pulled over for a traffic stop and she blended on her, you know, lorazepam or whatever that she took the night before. So we really looking at younger people in terms of their, you know, what I call the hangover effect of the benzos. Um, and if there is one class of drugs that really do significantly contribute to falls, it's the, the benzodiazepine. So um, again, when we look at the evidence, um, what we find is that overall, prescribing these drugs really doesn't get the outcome that we're looking for in terms of um, most people, you know, certainly take these for, um, for sleep. Um, they take them for, you know, generalized anxiety. Um, and the other good news is that we also, you know, have other uh, interventions, other mechanisms, and actually even not to push more drugs, but we have much better drugs in terms of treating anxiety than, than the benzos as well. Um, but I think it is, uh, it is really, really a challenge, as you all know, to spend time with patients to have these discussions that they really do need to stop the clinic that they've been on forever. Um, and so even though we do go back to the evidence and say, you know, this is what we know, then of course patients come back and say, okay, so what now? So now what do I do? Um, and again, we know a lot more about, you know, certainly what we call sleep hygiene and non-pharmacological anti-anxiety treatments, um, but it really is, I would have to say, a huge, huge challenge. Kim is shaking her head because she is the receiver of the, the begging and the, uh, and, the, and the yelling and the, I sent you a MyDH message 17 times and I need my Xanax. Well, then, well, now there are some insurance companies that won't pay for it if you're over 70 or 75 years old. So that in and of itself can be a challenge. Challenge, yeah. And they, you know, people, you know, they, they get used to it. They have a certain expectation of what's going to happen. They, you know, they've been doing the same thing for the last 20 years. They come in, they have a conversation with their doctor. They don't like to disappoint their doctor, so they say they'll try it. They go home and they try it once. Yeah, and and they're done. They're finished. I, I tried it all last night. I, I didn't get you know, it. I, I need my my Advan. I need it. So you know, there's a whole piece of educating that happens over and over and over again for a number of years, probably before we get them off of it. <laughs> yeah. So I think the average number is about five calls from the nurses, and then I'm completely worn out, and I just prescribe it. <laughs> <laughs> they wear me down. They wear me down. Yeah, I think that's an interesting comment that Enid made about the insurance companies denying it. 
I think sometimes when we look at guidelines like this, we have to be careful because they come, you know, back to to bite us. When we think about um, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the Beers criteria. The Beers criteria is a list of medications that are medications that should not be used in older adults. So Mark Beers, who is this great geriatrician, uh, you know, he came up with this list um, years ago and never intended for it to become, you know, CMS guidelines for nursing home care. So, you know, after, you know, a number of iterations, all of a sudden, you know, CMS said, listen, these are regulations in the nursing home, so you cannot give amitriptyline. You just cannot give it. And we're like, well, you know, maybe just a little bit, and it does work for this, and, you know, well, then you have to write seven pages of documentation, you know. So, you know, and, and Mark would always say, rest his soul, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it to do that. <laughs> um, so, again, sometimes these guidelines have, have a, a secondary issues that, that we don't... Uh, we don't always think about. So here, not you know, last but not least, because this is our bread and butter and geriatrics, <laughs> our poor nurses. Um, again, uh, when this was presented at the AGS meeting, uh, Paul Mulhausen stood up and he said, um, this very morning, uh, I got a call from the assisted living facility that, you know, Mrs. X, uh, who has dementia, is uh, quite agitated. And not only is she agitated, but she doesn't want to eat. Um, she kind of just doesn't want to get out, you know, leave her, her room. And she's just not herself. And we dipped her urine. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> which is, you know, it, which is the favorite activity in assisted living facilities, in nursing homes, is we dip the urine and, yes. She has a urinary tract infection. And, you know, then it's up to us to say, okay, well, just because you dipped her urine and she has bacteria in her urine, if you dipped her neighbor's urine, it would look the same way. Um, and although, as we well know, in certainly a lot of patients, that when they have urinary tract infections, that they exhibit themselves in different ways. It's not necessarily, you know, burning and fever and back pain and, you know, kind of the classic textbook. So it presents a real challenge. Um, so, uh, so Paul said, told the story that he got the call and uh, the nurse said, but, uh, you know, she did have a UTI, I don't know, three weeks ago, and the on-call doctor only treated her for three days with Factrum, which is kind of the standard of care for the 25-year-old who calls with urinary tract infection, but is certainly not a standard of care to treat, you know, an 89-year-old assisted living resident. Um, so he looked at the, sure enough, and he's like, okay, so she, you know, thoroughly convinced me, um, and so I prescribed, you know, Cipro, and, um, you know, the next day, uh, you know, they called or whatever and said, she's great. Everything, thank you so much. Everything's terrific. And the urine culture is negative. <laughs> so, you know, I think this is probably one of our, our biggest uh, challenges. And I'll just, Enid is smiling over here because. Well, it's either that or constipation. <laughs> <laughs> How is it managed in the hospital? Because obviously, I mean, this becomes an issue a lot. I mean, there are a lot more, again, patients with urinary tract infections as well, but. Like, how is usually. Well, so do you think patients are overtreated is really the question. I, I feel like when we tend to see um, folks come in with urinary tract infections, they become septic as a result. And so we're treating, like, the bacteremia. Um, otherwise, it's a body kind of urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. Personally, but, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but this is new to me. This this thinking on treating it in the elderly, so I hadn't really paid that much attention to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, a lot of us have obviously had to deal with really, really sick patients who have bacteria. So then, you know, how does that, you know? Cloud, no point. 
pretended there. Uh, how did that cloud your, you know, your, your wanting to treat? It's also the Friday afternoon. It's also, there's so many other things that go into, into prescribing, Kim. But isn't it also the recommendation is not, not to treat necessarily, but to, to watch for symptoms? Because an older demented patient who's more confused one day, that's not necessarily related to their UTI to a UTI, I mean, it could be, there's a number of reasons why someone could be more confused or someone have increased frequency of urination. So isn't the point more to, to pay closer attention to the symptoms as well as the dips and the cultures and look at the kind of the bigger picture? Oh, absolutely. So then what do they say? Well, fine, then give me an antipsychotic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there is that. <laughs> so what are the specific urinary tract symptoms so I never object to anybody putting dipping them, but but certainly wait wait just waiting for the culture, yeah. waiting for the culture to come back and and yeah and and Sandy I'll just uh, uh, put this out to you again. You're finding a lot of uh, you know you know what is your experience certainly in in long term care. You mean with the the, the bacteria? bacteria. Or the, yeah, the scenario you described. You know, if there's a change in behavior, um, I would be, you know, I could be convinced to treat them with an antibiotic. You know, I could be, and and it, and it makes a difference sometimes, and or it seems to, but uh, as you pointed out, the culture could be negative. But, but oftentimes the culture is not negative. Um, but that doesn't prove anything either, because uh, they can have back, you know, they could have a culture positive, but it doesn't necessarily mean they have an infection. So um, I, I'm. If there's a change in behavior or fall, I, I'm on the more liberal side of treating, but. Yeah, and I think it's a challenge, in, as, as you just pointed out, too, in terms of the cultures, because, first of all, we have issues with, with collection of samples. We have contaminated samples. Um, so sometimes it, 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 really, it really is a huge challenge. I think. Um, again, this requires, uh, you know, a fair amount of education, like Kim said, uh, when somebody is agitated or somebody has had a fall to say, okay, yes, this is certainly on our radar in terms of a differential diagnosis, but what, what else, what else is going on? Um, so I think that that's, that that's really important. <clears throat> um, so again, asymptomatic bacteria. The other thing that, I, that, I've, that I've come to really talk to families and patients about is just in general the overuse of antimicrobials. Um, and, you know, we all know that um, when we look at, this is silly, when we look at satisfaction surveys, um, satisfaction surveys on the parts of patients, especially in pediatrics, are much higher when, when, they, when they get an antibiotic, when they bring their child in. Uh, versus the, 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 you know, the, the provider saying, I think that this is viral and let's wait. Um, and we find that a lot as well, certainly in primary care. Patients come in and they want that prescription when they leave. They want that antibiotic. So the education, until they get, you know, cramps and diarrhea the next day, and, you know, then the nurses yell at us because we didn't, you know, prescribe the probiotics. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I think that should be number six, is the use of probiotics <laughs> when, you, uh, when you prescribe uh, antibiotics. Um, so, you know, the, when we look at the data in terms of patients' intolerance, of antibiotics and what that does, and not even in terms of what that does in terms of their, you know, uh, resistance, but just in general, especially when, you know, the average number of medications our patients are taking are between seven and ten. Um, and so the interaction, the cost, um, the risk of an adverse event, um, and, you know, so so those are some of the conversations that we that we try to have with patients about, you know, and certainly, you know, other team members, you know, in the facilities about the overuse um, of antibiotics as well. One of the things that I find on global um, geriatric patients who have like a URI or something and want an antibiotic, um, they're old. They don't think they have a lot of time. They don't want to get wasted on being sick. 
<laughs> so they want an antibiotic to get fixed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a bunch of education too. Right. And I think again, back to the to the issue of like bacteremia. You know, once somebody has an admission or somebody has you know has had sepsis, then that they're or the family member. Um, you know, and of course, as our big push now certainly is to maintain people in home, uh, not have them come to the emergency room, not have them come back into the hospital when we're dealing with, um, you know, some, you know, very demented people. We deal with really people with a lot of comorbidities um, who are very, very frail at home. Um, you know, when they call on Friday afternoon, um, with a low-grade fever, um, I would say that our, uh, you know, uh, um, the frequency of us uh, writing a script is, is pretty high. Certainly on much higher on Friday than Monday. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, some, especially on Monday, we may have some time to bring them into the office, and that's where, you know, we talk about access and all those types of things in terms of achieving that goal of not having people go to the ED. Um, because if somebody has a low-grade fever on Friday afternoon, you know, we all can project that out and say chances are, um, you know. So I think I think that's part of our our overall decision making. And I think what we're trying to do, and what's really has been the goal of this initiative, um, is really to to look at the evidence and to say we really need to have you know evidence-based guidelines. And you know, uh, how can we repeatedly try to get back to that and, and, and look to that as well. Um, we've done some work in primary care and geriatrics in, in GIM to look at some of our uh, triage protocols um, and to make sure that they're much more geriatric friendly. Um, as you well know, with the re-engineering of primary care and instituting, uh, you know, kind of these centralized call rooms uh, and the centralized call service, what we're finding is that you know there's a lot less professional nursing intervention in terms of triage, and a lot more of um, you know secretarial triage. So it's really the burden is on us to really uh, in geriatrics to go back and try to revise some of these protocols so we actually get the patients into the you know kind of right provider at the right time. Um, and, and prevent some of this, some of those uh, those ED visits and the, the uh, hospitalizations. Um, so I'm actually going to stop there um, and ask for any questions or issues people have. Mm -hmm. uh, two of the categories they don't use antipsychotics as first choice in benzos. So just in a quick bullet point, what would you suggest we use or do in house for our educators? So, so the primary thing that we do, of course, is non-pharmacological intervention. So to redirect, provide one-on-one, -on -one, provide more um, that types of supportive care. There are actually has been some research looking at using some specific toolkits. So there are some things that are out there um, for people to use inpatient. Um, so some of those toolkits are about you know, distraction that, and again, it depends on the level of the behavior that you're seeing. Um, I think, you know, most of us know that the earlier we intervene as somebody is more confused and somebody is more agitated, the easier it is to kind of prevent that escalation. Um, I think it depends on whether we're talking, you know, about somebody certainly who's delirious and what some of those implications are in terms of somebody being in a, a strange environment. Um, there's also some initiatives out there in terms of family caregivers and how do we, you know, support the use of family caregivers um, inpatient. Um, and so I think a lot of it is uh, relatively uh, uh, time intensive. And I think those are the challenges that we face is that there's just not time for um, um, for, for staff to sit to sit with somebody. Kelly. I'm um, that I was in some of the things that they seem to make sure you're accepting for potential unmet needs, especially if the person is not able to communicate verbally, um, just to make sure there's not a physical or emotional need that we could meet rather than going for a particular medication. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think that's a great point, and I'm sure Brenda's going to address some of that too as well in her next talk. But you know, when we look at, for example, pain, um, so we do know that when we, you know, we look at patients who are agitated who have dementia, uh, the percentage of patients who who have pain, and how do we, how are we, you know, so are we managing the pain? Are we managing any unmet need? Um, and going through that, um, but but it's it's a huge challenge. Um, for sure. And that's what, you know, again, the nursing homes are saying, well, great, you're, you're trying to get us to reduce these antipsychotics, and then you're cutting staff. So mm -hmm. how, do, how do I possibly do those things that we know, um, you know, are really helpful? Um, so. So I think uh, part of it is, uh, you know, I go back to kind of the systems approach. So how do you engage, say, in a nursing home when you have a dementia unit and you have patients who typically have, you know, behavioral issues and identifying that cohort of patients and how do you engage that group of patients? So do you need to have a lot more activity staff? Do you need to have people who are walking around providing people who are attentive and providing people kind of prophylactic interventions. Well, I understand all that, but all I keep seeing is staff being cut, 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 cut. So they're all great interventions, but if you don't have the people to do that. I I, I totally agree with you. I used to yeah. call families that they would do shifts with a couple of patients that were quite difficult. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, just in terms of to just, you know, play devil's advocate, uh, in terms of the, the, some of the facilities and the, and the margins of them being able to manage what they need to manage to financially, uh, you know, it's really, really hard. I mean, I think uh, New Hampshire, if you, just in case you didn't know this, uh, we have more patients in nursing homes, percentage of patients, uh, than um, any state in the country. So, uh, and I think in part um, that has to do with the, uh, some in part to the lack of community supports. Mm -hmm. um, but when we think about doing other things other than institutional care, um, I think that um, we'll do overall better off and have much better outcomes. And when we look at some states who have kind of thought outside the box, in terms of their uh, their overall budget and keeping people in the community and what does that take? So, for example, you know, adult day programs, medical adult day programs. I mean, the closest one we have here now is in Springfield, in Springfield, Vermont. I mean, we have to put patients on an hour-long bus. I mean, those programs are not, you know, again being supported. When you think about how do you maintain somebody in in the community with with severe dementia? The, the other thing that I, um, having come from a long-term care facility before working in the outpatient clinic and also from home care, is um, the physical therapists, the activity staff that are coming in, the occupational therapists that are coming into the facilities and going to the patients' homes are working eight to five. That's not when the patients need them to be there. You know, the patients really need those people working three to 11. Um, and engaging them when there are fewer administrators walking around the halls and, and distracting them. Um, so our society, we've, we've created these nine to five jobs um, for people who need 24-7 jobs. No, I totally agree with you and I'll just end this. There are some really innovative models. Um, so um, I had done some work at a new nursing home, it was actually a VA nursing home, so of course they kind of had this open checkbook. And the way that they designed this unit um, was not only did they have specific rooms and interventions for people who became extremely agitated, but they could take one staff member would bring this patient into, the, into, the, uh, into this one. What, Ironically, they called it a quiet room. However, what they found anecdotally is that if they put on like a video, like Sound of Music or something, if they put on Star Wars for some reason, that super like imaging immediately had an impact on somebody's aggressive behavior. Um, and just one other thing that they did there, which I thought was really super, is that they actually had like a cafe. They had like this uh, like a luncheonette with like a countertop. And the, they had support to have an aide come in and cook breakfast. And the minute they put on the bacon and the coffee, the, the, even the severely, like significantly demented patients, 
just this olfactory memory was so keen still that they all came and sat at the at the counter. So I think that there is hope. There's you know this whole uh, you know a green model of you know long term care and neighborhoods. So I think it's happening. It's happening slow though, too slow. But anyway. I have one Mary? question. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about how the accounting staff at your nursing home in New York liked the opportunity to be the patient. Oh, they loved it. Mm -hmm. They loved it. They really did because I think you know they were there for the mission. I mean, they knew they were you know a bookkeeper, but they knew that they were in the context of caring for all these older adults. Um, and quite frankly, Mary, a lot of them were moms, mm -hmm. so it didn't take much to train them to to feed older adults, and they really felt much closer. Even though they knew their work was meaningful work, they really felt like it was much more meaningful when they did that. Yeah. Anyway, so thank you everyone thank for coming. You.